Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span, or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is Handling Conflict, King David Style. This is Part 1, Authority Conflicts. World War II certainly had its complexities, and one of the most convoluted was the handling of thousands of Japanese residents living in the United States. In the years leading up to the war, many Japanese fled Japan for the U.S., and most of the immigrants were not granted citizenship, but their children, born on U.S. soil, were. They were called the Nisei, or second-generation Japanese Americans, and this is one of their stories. They answered the door, only to find two FBI agents searching for contraband. The agents received an anonymous tip that the family had purchased a ham radio. The problem with that was that the family could easily communicate with Japan with the radio, and in the World War II era, the fear was that this family could relay intelligence from Hawaii to contacts in Japan. Anything from training schedules to ship arrivals or ship departures, and really the list is endless but it's a legit security concern. The FBI agents made their demand to see the ham radio. Desiring to be good citizens, and despite the social-political angst of the time, Dan's dad obediently produced the radio, which had been the family's Christmas gift, a way to keep in contact with the remaining family members in Japan, an innocent motive, really. One of the agents stepped up with a screwdriver and began taking off a backing plate to remove a few items from inside, rendering it inoperable without destroying it officially. Before he could get one screw out, Dan's dad called a halt to the process. He had the FBI agents step back, and frankly, if anyone tried this in our current social-political climate, he'd probably got shot for it, but he grabbed a nearby axe and destroyed the radio in front of the FBI. There was no question about it. That radio wasn't even good for spare parts. He wanted to be sure he left no lingering question in the mind of those two agents. The Anoya household are good citizens. They are good people. And right over his shoulder stood Dan, a military-age young man, soaking up the lesson, chomping for his chance to enter the war for the USA. When the door finally opened for the Nisei to enter the military, Dan beat a path to the enlistment office and would go on to join the legendary 442nd Regimental Combat Team in World War II, a team made up almost completely of Nisei. I will cover Dan's accomplishments in another episode, but this team would go on to set the record for the most medals earned by a regiment, and it had everything to do with their upbringing and their culture, and the record stands to this day. The Japanese have what is called a shame-honor culture. Families are very tight-knit, but bring any shame on the family and you're better off dead. And this is where they got their slogan for the 442nd, Go for Broke. The idea that it was better to charge into battle headlong and die, bringing honor to the family, than to get shot in the back running away or while sitting in a foxhole bringing shame to the family. This go-for-broke idea was the mindset embedded in thousands of young Japanese men and the mindset that earned so many medals. A quick side note, if you've ever heard the word or the phrase bonsai, not the tree, but the phrase bonsai, 
but used as an exclamation, it's translated as this, go for broke. When you couple the hard-charging mindset of the Nisei with the respect and integrity highlighted in the ham radio smashing incident, you have a powerful one-two combination punch. And I would suggest that the respect for authority and an integrity that acts in a certain way as to eliminate any question of disloyalty is the bedrock foundation for success. And I would also point out that such respect and integrity is hard to come by these days, even in some Christian circles. This is not the last we will hear from Dan and his family in regard to this study, but I want to take a look at conflict in the life of David. Conflict within and conflict without. Potential episodes will look at conflicts and difficulties handled alongside of or against characters like Samuel, Saul, Jonathan, David's brothers, Joab, Absalom, Nabal. Maybe there will be a comparison between Abigail and Michael. Or maybe there will be a background story on Ahithophel and Bathsheba and Shimei. And the list goes on, really. There are so many lessons to be learned. I'm looking forward to digging into these character studies on conflict. But today we jump into the middle of David's mess. That nasty middle ground where he's received the anointing of kingship, but has to wait out the placement of kingship. And to wrap your head around this dilemma, you have to wrap your head around the dilemma of life. There is a difference between having the calling, moving towards that calling, living in that calling, and executing the duties of that calling. In David's situation, the anointing or the calling is clear and everybody knows it, even the guy who's sitting on the throne. The irony of the situation is that Saul has the position, but he's lost the anointing. Clearly, God has intentionally removed his spirit from Saul. He's like the steward of Gondor, if you like the Lord of the Rings references. He holds the position of leadership without the divine right or the blessing or the anointing. David, on the other hand, has the anointing, but has yet to take the position. This is a bad situation for everyone. Those who follow Saul follow his position as king without divine anointing. Those who follow David follow anointing and blessing without the divine position or social framework, or dare I use the word government here. Neither group gets the best of the hand they've been dealt at this point. This is a frustrating stage of transition, and it's a mess for everyone involved. And the problem for those who follow David, the people who follow the anointing, is that it's a bitter pill to swallow that there's a divine blessing on the position and on the throne, or on the presidency, if you will, irrespective of the person that holds that position, but the person they are following isn't the one on the throne. It seems unjust and unholy, but it's God's plan and God's time. This is the difficulty for those who are following David. Whether by force or stealth, David's followers wanted to take the throne, but either way, David recognizes the error of it all and refuses to take Saul out. Again, there are two elements in play, the anointing of the position and the anointing of the person. God removed the anointing from Saul early on, and you can see that in 1 Samuel 15, but God did not remove Saul from the position immediately. That would come in time, and David recognizes that to raise his hand against anyone in the position is to raise his hand against God. 
because God had established the position in the first place. In fact, when David is in the cave and has his first opportunity to kill Saul, look at his response after he had cut off a piece of Saul's robe, quote, But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, quote, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one. For the Lord himself has chosen him, end quote. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. 1 Samuel 24, 5-7. This is David's verbal acknowledgement that it's not his place to remove Saul. Now, personally, I would have carved kick me and put Abner's initials on the back of his robe and then set up a GoPro camera to capture the hysteria, but then again, I'm not King David, and I've still got some growing up to do. I haven't read up on all Native American tribe traditions, but I have read up a bit on the Crow and many of the Plains Indians. Their warriors have a tradition of what they call counting coup. A coup is an act of bravery and can come in many forms. If you look at old photos of chiefs like Crow Chief Plenty Coup, you'll see them often carrying a stick with feathers hanging off to the side. This is called a coup stick. It's similar to medals being pinned on the chest of a soldier. Each feather stands for an act of bravery. One such act is to sneak into your enemy's camp and to take their horses or other items without waking them up. One result of the coup is that when the enemy wakes up, they're often left to wonder in terror who was there, how long were they there, and leaves them with a lingering terror of not being able to sleep when they have an enemy that will take advantage of them if they do. In 1 Samuel 26, David takes Abishai and they count coup on Saul. They sneak into the camp, pass all Saul's guards, and both stand over Saul while he's sleeping. Abishai begged for permission to kill Saul. It's almost comical, really, that these two would have such a deep conversation about leadership do's and don'ts while Saul and his elite troops snooze the night away. Anyhow, David denies Abishai's request, saying, quote, Don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down some day, or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. Verses 9 through 11. They steal Saul's spear and water jug as proof of their presence, and they exit the site. Unfortunately, some in the church would look at the cave opportunities and the counting coup opportunities as divine opportunities. But David refuses to take the bait. In a later chapter, when Saul actually dies on the battlefield, ultimately taking his own life, an Amalekite thinks he's going to capitalize on Saul's death. He lies and claims that he had been the one to take his life, justifying his actions with the phrase, eh, he was going to die anyways, as if it was some kind of a mercy killing only to reap the consequences of raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. You can find that in 1 Samuel 31 and 32. His lie got him killed for implying that he had raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. Ultimately, David lives a long and blessed life and dies an old man in the peace and sanctuary of the kingdom God built through him. Granted, there were some hiccups along the way, and we'll get into that in the weeks to come, but a foundational element of his success is found in his refusal to make God's calling happen 
in his own time. He refused to violate the basic rules of divine respect and honor for God's anointed. He is very much like Dan's father, who destroyed the radio in front of the FBI. When given the opportunity to usurp divine authority or to take a shortcut to help God along in his plan, he destroyed the opportunity and removed all doubt that he could be trusted. And in the long run, this foundational element in the early years of his life set the stage to secure his later years as king. So practically, how does this affect us or apply to us today? I love being an American. I love my heritage. I love this country. I don't love all that's going on, but I still have a hope that God can turn things around. And amidst this, there's one thing that concerns me about it, and I fear that it bleeds into the church setting. Now hang with me here for a moment. We as Americans brag and boast of our First Amendment free speech rights. And while we should be grateful in a social and a political sense, I fear a sense of freedom of speech is not accompanied by biblical wisdom, especially when it comes to speaking about our church leaders, God's anointed. Too many people feel free to share their opinion about leaders without giving a thought to the fact that God has anointed them in one or both forms of position and function. And social media is often the stage for such foolishness, dressed up as concern or wisdom. Be careful when exercising your rights. And I can hear someone saying that David didn't murder Saul or put a hit on him. Do you remember what Jesus said about such matters? Quote, You have heard that it was said to the man of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you, that everyone who continues to be angry with his brother or harbors malice against him shall be guilty before the court. And whoever speaks contemptuously or insultingly to his brother, Raka, you empty-headed idiot, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be endangered of the fiery hell. It's Matthew five twenty-one through 22 red letters in the Amplified. So by way of application, let's not fool ourselves into thinking this passage applies to other people. God has called us all, not only to himself, but to do something here on earth. We're all like David. We have an anointing, we have a call, we have a gifting, we have a blessing, and an eventual position or a place to operate it in. Like David, they may not begin and run concurrently. Much of our lives are lived in that in-between place between the call and the eventual position. And we'll have to deal with people and conflict in that in-between period of time. Learn from David. First, it's not your responsibility to make God's plan happen. It's our responsibility to wait patiently, act obediently, and submissively to God. Secondly, the chief challenge for us as we wait is to keep our mouths shut especially when we're disgruntled, to not lift our hand against the Lord's anointed, to tame that free speech obsession, and to heed the warning of Matthew 5, 21 through 22, and err on the side of keeping our knives sheathed and our spears at rest, or more plainly, keeping our mouths shut. Live like Dan's dad. 
Leave no question to where your allegiance lies. Our allegiance is to Christ, not ourselves, not our comfort, not our convenience or our calling. It's to Christ. I'm Nate Vidio, and this has been Something to Gnaw. Until next week, God bless you.